0: G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. Today, one of the most popular progressive political commentators and talk show hosts in the world. He is an online phenomenon, David Packman. He has uh, over 1.8 million subscribers on YouTube. He dominates in the, uh, the area in which I'm about to embark, uh, online media rather than conventional broadcast media. He started The David Pacman Show in 2005, and by 2011 it had been picked up by conventional media outlets, by cable news channels and local affiliates and so on. And he's gone from strength to strength. He's appeared on Fox News and CNN and Joe Rogan's show as a kind of a voice for a younger generation of progressives who perhaps aren't so obsessed with culture war issues. Now, I sat down with David earlier this year, I would say three months ago. It was before the October 7th attack in Israel by Hamas. I suppose, in hindsight, we would have spoken about that if we were speaking today and specifically about what that has done to American politics, the divisions that it's opened up over those who are siding with Palestinians, over those who are siding with Israelis. But in some ways, I'm glad that we're not speaking now. I'm glad that we have something of a minor time capsule to the way that we were feeling about the state of the American mood and of American political division prior to October 7th. That tragedy and the ongoing tragedy in Gaza has a tendency to suck up all the oxygen in the room, and there is a certain opportunity cost in that, an opportunity cost of the things that we could be talking about that we are not so forgive the fact that we don't talk about this and we seem like we're completely oblivious to the events of the past two months. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a really, really useful snapshot and insight into the way that American politics is currently cleaving itself uh, in the absence of the Israel-Gaza issue. Uh, David thinks that the left is more reasonable than I do, so we get into that and butt heads a little bit. I hope you enjoy the one and only, the legend, David Packman. Well, you were just saying that you want to move to Spain. Uh, and I was saying, when I was last on your show in October of 2017, first year of Donald Trump, uh, everyone was saying, you know, before he was elected, oh, we're all going to move to Canada if he's elected. And uh, you know what? Saskatchewan is still empty. It's still only bears. And yeah. Everyone, and so I, I'm calling your bluff. I'm moving to
1: Spain, today. no, and this has nothing to do with Trump. Like, I'm not even pretending that it has to. It's for me, it's more you know, I'm from Argentina, and um, so my options are okay, I'm a U.S. citizen, I can always go back to Argentina, but the economy's not so good, and there's a lot of complicated things going on. I could go to Israel, but it would take a couple years to get citizenship, and I don't know that I'm necessarily looking to leave forever. It's, it's more just that the u s. is sort of organized in a much more anti-social way than a lot of u- Mediterranean Europe and South America. And I like a lot of aspects of that lifestyle, you know, mm. people hanging out at cafes at all hours of the day, and you don't have to hide your children away starting at seven p m. You know, I have a little baby daughter now, and people people are out. They're in society, you know, it's so funny um, to say that.
0: I was literally just doing talk back on my radio show, David, about what time people eat dinner because Australia, much like America I imagine, has this weird disjoint where you've got the old school Anglo-Saxon tradition of like having dinner at 5.30 or 6. (laughs) I'm sure there are swathes of the Midwest where people come home and they have dinner at 6 p.m. And then you've got the the people who live a more Mediterranean lifestyle who eat at nine or, or at 10. And the, the hostility and argumentation between those two sides, both of whom think have perfected the right way to live, is hilarious. <laughs> but I'm with you. Who wouldn't like a Mediterranean lifestyle? One of my, one of my best buddies used to live in Berlin. He was an English guy. And uh, he came to visit in Sydney and Sydney has quite a, with the exception of the late night thing, it has quite a Mediterranean feel, it's a harbour city, people are quite hedonistic, people are friendly and laid back, they like their coffee, they like their food. Uh, And he was like, yeah, but I like the grittiness of Berlin. I like the the harshness and the culture. I like the cold and I like the the seriousness. I like the import of Berlin. And then when the global financial crisis happened, he was sent to Athens to report on the Greek meltdown and uh, the Greek no vote. He's never returned he's Mm. never returned to Berlin. Of course, once you get a taste for the Mediterranean lifestyle, now he lives in Rome. He's like, Viva Roma! who doesn't want this baby? He's getting around on his Vespa over cobblestone streets and smoking and drinking until
1: the wee hours of the morning. It's the best. I, I do think the thing that would be tough if you are used to the United States. So a lot of things I think would be great. But I think the one thing that could be tough is the bureaucracy and difficulty of accomplishing what should be extraordinarily simple and mundane. Yeah. A paperwork or I need to get a plumber sort of thing. This is the ubiquitous complaint from people I know who have moved to Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, which is, It took me three years to remodel my bathroom. Um, It took me six months to renew a passport. And, you know, I I do think that that would become a frustration.
0: Don't try to start a small business. Don't think that you're going to create a tech hub or something. Yeah. Uh, Although I must say, you know where you need to move then? You need to move to Northern Europe right well yeah to to, i, I love denmark man They've denmark got is fantastic your, your paperwork there is no paperwork what paperwork just walk into a post <laughs> office and they'll hand you a license for a new small business you're done
1: the problem with denmark of course is weather a little bit and it's a different vibe you know it's much it's a little more uptight i think than yeah. what maybe I'm, I'm looking for yeah that's
0: true and also within the anglosphere it's funny that you say that you think of those mediterranean countries as being infuriatingly bureaucratic and difficult to get things done. Because in the Anglosphere, that's America to me. I mean, America, having having lived in America for a dozen years, and now living in a country that properly funds its tax office and its public services and its organs of state, it's an amazing... Like I still have to do US taxes because I'm married to an American guy, and it's just nightmare. Like trying to, you try to log into IRS.gov, and it <laughs> kicks you back to some other website. So I, I create an account with this other Etops website, which is a subsidiary EFTPS, of, of, course, of yeah. IRS. I get through the final process after entering my inside leg measurements and you know all of the data that they need, and then they say your your new password and pin will be mailed to you <laughs> within four to six weeks i'm in australia right. i need access now you go to the you go to the website you try and you need your your last year's return to in order to enter something but that never works and it doesn't understand yeah. my address because i'm not in the you know like the system of working you know the your private health insurance in America. The fucking HIPAA thing. You need to fax everything everywhere. Like, this, it's, it is the most advanced developing country in the world or the yeah. least developed developed country. You know, here in Australia, nothing, it's not perfect, but, you know, like the state government has an app that's pretty good and you just log on and, they, you know, things work. You can renew your license without waiting in line for eight hours. So you can do even better.
1: It's all relative. And uh, I've had no shortage of frustrations with bureaucracy in the United States. And then I heard about what my friend who bought an apartment in France was going through. And I said, okay, some things don't work that poorly here, I guess That's I must true. say. That's true. Yeah.
0: How's the political conversation? How's the climate? Uh, tell me that I'm wrong in, in viewing from afar my beloved former homeland uh, gradually disintegrating into a, 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 a basket of quarreling tribes.
1: No, I agree. I mean, listen, at this point, it's extremely en vogue to make one of a few assessments of what's going on. And so you've got the tribalism people who love to rant for an hour about we've become so tribalistic and that's really fundamentally the problem. And then you have the next layer, which is wait, hold on a second. Sure. Tribalism. fine but one side is objectively crazy. So it's not just tribalism. You quite literally have one side that has abandoned policy. They're all about wokeness, even though they can't define it. They're all about um, uh, an obsession with trans people and drag shows. And so it's not. So then that layer comes in. Then you have the next layer, which is we have fundamentally two countries in the United States and I'm actually quite partial to this. So this now is not just what some say. I I actually do think it's a fair. It's at least accurate to say in the United States, you can divide the country up in a number of ways geographically, uh, politically, a bunch of different ways. It is absolutely the case that there is a basket of states in the U.S whose standard of living, education, infrastructure, access to healthcare, average income is like that of Norway and Denmark. You have that. You have that basket of states. You then have a different basket of states that is very much like some of the poorer countries of the world in terms of all of these metrics. And that latter basket is subsidized at the federal tax level by the first basket of states. This is a reality when you look at, you know, just something as simple as dental care. How how common is it that you visited the dentist in the last six months and you see these dramatic differences from Connecticut to Mississippi, for example, and built into that is so much economics and sociology and anthropology and all these different things. And and there are really a couple of countries that are living it's not even side by side. It's you could say it's urban rural. There's a number of ways to slice and dice it, but that is absolutely happening all at the same time. Mm
0: Don't they also have more than two that you know, I've seen some demographers breaking America up into these really interesting set of countries. I come over there like seven or something. Yeah. But like, you know. And the the point I've often made the the point to foreigners who ask me for a simplistic reductionistic explanations of what's happening in America, like after Trump was elected, oh my goodness, you know, Americans are so this or Americans are so that. I'm like, there is as much of a difference between Oregon and Mississippi and New Orleans and Boston, as there is really between parts of Portugal and parts of Belgium, like yes. with the exception of the language. you know, I have more in common with you and my buddy who I was just talking about who lived in Berlin and now lives in the Mediterranean. There is a cosmopolitan, rootless elite of people, as the anti-globalists like to call us, who really do yes. have more in common with each other than the blood and soil, uh, salt of the earth. People who have a, a deep sense of place and tradition in hundred percent regional and rural parts of, of America.
1: Yeah. I've said before and I've discussed, you know, talking about the whole moving thing, the transition for me, I've spent quite a bit of time in London. I've spent quite a bit of time in Madrid. Paris is a little different because I, I speak English and Spanish, but my French is very mediocre, but even still transitioning there would be far simpler than moving to Akron, Ohio for me or something along those lines culturally and in mm. so many different ways. And sometimes I'll talk to people who say, oh, yeah, you know, I I didn't really like the U.S. It's just so hot. And oh, really? Where did you go? Well, <laughs> my um, my my partner was um, worked in Dallas, Texas for a year, right? You really don't know the United States from that. Yeah. Any more than, you know, pe- the, the French say Paris is really not reflect- reflective of all of France. You've got Southern France and then Brittany. And these are and that's a much smaller country. Imagine the United States and saying, I know what I know from being in Dallas for a year. Mm. Uh, it's, it's obviously much more complex than that. Yeah, totally.
0: Uh, you mentioned earlier, by the way, before we leave that, did you know that the, mis- that the GDP of the United States, I don't understand how economists measure this stuff or what's going on. The GDP per capita of the United States is so much higher than other comparable countries, where I regard the standard of living as being generally superior. That I read that like the GDP per capita in Mississippi is higher than the UK.
1: Yeah, Can that, that may I mean, GDP per capita I mean, median income is talking. median income is probably better to tell you something about quality of life than GDP per, per capita because GDP per capita can be, you're, you're just basically dividing up what the, what is produced economically by the number of people that live there and it can be extraordinarily unequal. So although you're dividing it by the population, the actual income or or profit from that can be extremely concentrated. So it's not a great indicator of uh, quality of life.
0: I'm going to look it up now. I'm just going to bore the listener. So nominal GDP at current 2022 prices. Oh, I see, nominal GDP per capita, $47,190 in Mississippi. GDP per capita of UK, or let's say France, since you were talking about France. Yeah. Uh, oh, 43000 43, Oh, yeah, so less. So Mississippi has a higher GDP per capita than France.
1: Yeah. Or to give another example, if you look at the state of Virginia, GDP per capita is $71,000. But median income is thirty-seven thousand. So there, we're really looking at two different things.
0: Well, let's look at median income then. Median income <laughs> Mississippi is uh, twenty-five thousand dollars in twenty-twenty. Uh, gee, that's not a lot, is it? Uh, median income France twenty-eight thousand. Twenty-five versus twenty-eight. Man. The average media... The I'm media seeing income 40
1: in, for France. I'm seeing oh, 40 okay. for France. Maybe Google's
0: misleading me. Could be.
1: <clears throat> in any In case. US
0: dollars or in euros? The in
1: Wikipedia US Wikipedia
0: for median income has France at 28,146. Interesting. Interesting indeed. Yeah. You were saying earlier, David, and now that's going to haunt me all day. I still don't understand. <laughs> it's, I mean, I still just don't understand it. I don't understand how you can drive through... You, you drive through Mississippi, and I mean you, mean, you made the comment about dentistry, but like, you look at people's the way people live. I mean, I guess there's there may be something going on here in terms of class, rather than uh, like in class comparison and culture versus just economic well-being. In the sense, certainly, that I would see a town in Mississippi that's. Denuded of all soul and culture, and is just a large road with strip malls and a Walmart where fat people are waddling in and buying their cheap consumer electronics goods as evidence of poverty. But when I once said that to an American friend of mine, he was like, Well, perversely, that's actually evidence of opulence, mm. right? These are people who are able to buy more consumer goods than your average French person might be. So the old French guy who's like walking through a cobblestone town and going and sitting down and smoking and playing bull and drinking coffee with his friends may be actually less of a financial, you know, he may be poorer on paper than the person who's driving a big cheap SUV to Walmart to in and, uh, and buy their Dunkin' Donuts. In some ways, that is a that is a superior economic actor, the uh, the poor American, than the median Frenchman.
1: Yeah. And this has been explored quite a bit because of all of the discussion, particularly Since Donald Trump became president about China and tariffs on China and bringing production back home in the context of the pandemic and this sort of thing, which is that in the United States, a decision was made not by one person, but just by a successive series of policy decisions that we'd rather the cheap stuff from China so that people can go into the Walmart and buy the stuff. And the lower salaries and the offshoring of jobs, et cetera. And whenever politicians left or right talk about bringing bringing production back home, sure, that could be done over a period of decades, but it also would bring with it significantly higher costs at Walmart, at places like Walmart. And it's not really clear that people like it. It seems to some degree that the whole concept here is, yes, we may not have access to good health care. Yes, we may not make a lot of money but we get such cheap stuff from China that we can still get a TV or whatever the case may be. Some on the right will use this as proof that there's no poverty problem. I remember a Bill O'Reilly segment must be 10 years ago, but it's in my mind where he said, listen, the poor in the U.S. are fine. They still have big screen TVs and cell phones, and it sort of misses the bigger picture about what actually. Leads to satisfaction. What actually leads to freedom to self-determine how you want to live your life, or mobility, or these sorts of things. But it is true that many of the poor in the United States, factually speaking, still have a big-screen TV, Mm. like you're talking about.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And uh, look, I'm I don't object to the idea that it doesn't matter if you don't have wage or salary growth, as long as you have de-inflation on all of the goods that you want to buy. That is functionally uh, like getting a, uh, a wage rise doesn't matter if you keep earning thirty thousand dollars a year if the cost of everything that you care about is going down by twenty percent because we're getting more efficient and we're offshoring and uh, we're you know and there's freer trade and there's AI or whatever the problem is that you also need to include in that basket of things that you care about education and health right you can't <laughs> yeah you can't have your big screen TV and then also have diabetes that isn't treated.
1: Yeah. And the other thing, I mean, there's a bigger economic conversation, but deflation might sound good, but it's actually not good for the economy, at least as far as we've structured it, because under deflationary circumstances, you would expect things to cost less in the future, which would cause you to delay purchases on anything you don't absolutely need that delay of purchase. S- starves businesses of customers which causes them to lay people off and so the deflationary spiral is also bad at the macroeconomic level but at least practically speaking you're making a good point which is people may not feel the wage stagnation if they can continue to get cheap stuff from china
0: yeah it's interesting i, th- I honestly think that if, if the united states were able to resolve those two things health and education in other words if if there was healthcare, at least a baseline of healthcare for everybody uh, and I'd like to get your thoughts about this as well, about what that would look like, because I think many on the American left are, uh, are kidding themselves if they think that what universal health care is, is extending the largesse that Americans currently enjoy from many of their best private plans to everybody. That's not what we enjoy in countries where there is quote unquote universal health care like Australia and Canada and most of Western Europe. It's much more limited. So Americans would have a bit of a shock, I think, in realizing that, oh, OK, well now there's... Yeah. There's all kinds of things that aren't covered. I mean, in Australia, dental isn't covered by the, you know, by the government, for example. There are all kinds of hodgepodge compromises that countries have to make to get laws passed and to, to get things through that don't make a, a lot of sense. Um, but if you could do that and if you could fix education so that public schools were funded equitably instead of from the local property taxes in their neighbourhood, I mean, can you think of a, of a more bizarre way to entrench... Disadvantage than to fund local schools by property taxes on the local communities, so that poor areas yeah. get poor get shitty schools and rich ones get rich ones. You know, in and a there's a like little Australia, bit of
1: redistribution just... that happens at the state level, where states will also supplement funding, and so that's one area where the taxes from a rich area may go to slightly improve uh, schools in in less wealthy areas, but it's a fraction of the total funding, as as you're pointing out. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, and so if you fix public school funding, if you control the cost of tertiary education, or at least make the assumption that you're going to have a university degree less of an assumption and invest more in technical skills or whatever else you need to do to make it less mandatory to come out of, to enter the adult workforce with a six figure debt and uh, provide healthcare, then I think America looks pretty good.
1: Right. And those are pretty significant changes on the um on, on the on the college thing. It is interesting. You know, I have a 15 month old daughter now and I'm going through the motions of she's absolutely going to college, but I don't really believe that she's absolutely going to college. You know, I'm doing what we call a 529 plan. It's sort of like a college savings account with some tax advantages and I'm, I'm doing all of this stuff. But when I sit back and think, OK, if she went to the school I went to and uh, there's six, I think it's 6% a year. Um, cost growth we've seen over the last 20 years. If that continues, it'll be about $200,000 per year by the time she's 18. Okay. So $800,000 for a four year degree. It just doesn't make any sense. No, but It just makes no sense. It makes no sense in any way.
0: You have one thing going for you, which is you're also a foreign national and I hear there are universities in Buenos Aires.
1: Yes. And they're free. Yeah. exactly
0: you know the australian government introduced i was no i was paying attention to the whole debate about whether you know the biden college loan thing whether or not college loans should be forgiven uh, whether or not there should be free university education and i got to yeah. say as something of a centrist myself i'm i'm moderately sympathetic to the uh, the sense of injustice that some people feel who have paid off their loans like why do these people get a free handout and i had to i did right. the right thing they didn't pay it off i managed to pay it off also the sense that should universities be completely you know, funded by state universities? This is in the United States. Of course, Harvard degrees aren't going to be fully federally funded. But should state university, state colleges be funded fully from the taxpayer with no copay from the people who go there? Well, university graduates tend to earn more than other people. So what you're basically doing is requiring people with lower incomes who are paying taxes to subsidize people who go on to have higher incomes with with university degrees. Australia came up with a pretty good solution in the 1980s, which has been gradually whittled away by successive conservative governments and and undermined. But it was good at the time, which was called the Higher Education Contribution Scheme, where the government, you wouldn't need to put any money down to go to university up front. You still don't. The government gives you a loan. That loan is an interest-free loan, although it's pegged to inflation, so it rises according to the Consumer Price Index. Every year, but you're never going to be saddled with that, like you know paying interest. The government issues the loan itself, and you only need to start paying back the loan after your income hits like above rough, roughly average m- income. Now that, that threshold has come down and down over the years, and it's sort of at poverty level now. But the idea was, and, and it's, it's collected by the tax office without you having to worry about it. Or see it right. So when you get your tax statement at the end of the year from the Australian equivalent of the IRS, you know here are your taxes. You've hit the threshold to pay back your higher education contribution scheme. Here's a sliding scale. You start at two percent, four percent. You go up to six percent, and ultimately, then once you've paid it off, then you don't have to worry about. it. You don't have to think about it. It solves the problem of inequality because although there is a discount for people who pay in full upfront. And although there are still some fees, when I went to university, the government covered 80% of it, at least, and I had to pay about 20% of it. uh, So that does exist
1: in the United States for federal loans. And Joe Biden recently expanded the income-based repayment so that more people will qualify. It's sort of just like growing the pool of people that can take advantage of that. So it exists to a degree. It's not good for everybody, particularly folks who are earning... Enough to not qualify, but still not so much that repaying the loan right away is comfortable. But that that does exist a little bit. By the way, I don't want to forget this. Poor people. I'm sorry.
0: Do you mean it only exists for poor people in the states?
1: It's, it's expanded a little bit. It, the problem, I I guess what I'm saying is there are folks who are making too much to qualify, but still not really that much.
0: It's available for millions. Yeah. 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 Anyway, you said you didn't want to, you didn't want to forget something.
1: It's, it continues to tickle me that in the UK and Australia calling something a scheme doesn't mean that it's bad. Oh. I always, I always love that. In the U.S., we like, say, "Oh, they've come up with this scheme." You're not going to believe it, and you're basically yeah. talking about like a scam.
0: Right, right. Uh, and cab- I know a cabal, that that's not what you... a cabal yeah. has come up with a scheme. With the David. scheme, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, no. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right on all of those things. I also think that if this collapses, so when we think like, will my daughter really pay eight hundred thousand dollars for a, a a a bachelor's degree? I don't know, it's not sounding really good to me. It also will advantage folks who have other paths to make connections in society. And with in my mind, with the people that I know, I could help my daughter not go to college and get the right internships and help her start a business where she may be less affected by this outrageous increase to the cost of a four year degree. Mm That may not be an option for other people, so it again is just another way in which it will probably grow inequality.
0: And yet, even within the university sector, the fact that there are legacy admissions, which I only learned about this year, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know this was still a thing that you could that yeah. you, your child has a has a an obvious, overt, unabashed, unashamed, unhidden formal leg up in getting into the institution that you went to. That is the definition of inequality, of inherited generational inequality right there. Just get rid of that. Uh, Like for a start, I mean, when you're talking about, you know, race-based admissions or should we be able to take this into account or should we be able to take take that into account? How about daddy was privileged enough to go here is (laughs) something we get rid of.
1: Now, I don't know that every institution has that in the, I just don't know enough about it. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, like well, Yale's. I just hard. don't know that state schools have legacy admissions. Maybe they
0: do. I'm just not sure. No, but maybe you don't need them at state schools. I mean, the, the right. we're talking about the one percent or the five percent. Yeah. I guess. Um, you said earlier, just to to pivot back to culture war stuff. That you know, there's this whole narrative that some people go on about about oh, we're so tribalized. We you know we can't speak to each other anymore. Uh, we're we're quarrelling, um, and. The, the the problem with that analysis is that there is one side that's gone batshit crazy. I would concur with all of that. Uh, but I would also add, isn't it worth interrogating why one side has gone batshit crazy? Uh, not to absolve them of any responsibility for doing so, but they haven't dropped from the sky. And yes. Sometimes I feel that the left, the more progressives or social justice activists or whatever you want to want to call them, are providing a tremendous amount of ammunition that can be cynically misused by people who want to rile up uh, the, the right, and they're nudging it further off the cliff. Is that blaming the victim?
1: Well, I think it would be interesting to hear some examples of the ammunition you're referring to.
0: Uh, so I suppose the censoriousness of the way that people have conversations on social media, uh, the censoriousness of the way that academic institutions handle flare-ups on social media, um, the, the, the hysteria and censoriousness that university students, including graduate students, can exhibit towards different ideas that they regard as being hate speech. So <clears throat> there are a million examples one could give, but the most recent one that I've heard is, is it Yoel Inbar, who, is, who does the, I don't know if you know the, the, he has a podcast, two psychologists, to uh, anyway, um, Rings a ba- Bell. The basic story, he's a, he's a, a central, a center left guy. He's not a, he's not a manipulative, like, oh, I'm so heterodox, like, uh, bro, dude, bro. And, um, his wife was uh, was offered a job at UCLA. He's an academic, and uh, he went through the whole process, was apparently going to get the job, and then graduate students dug up podcasts that he'd done years ago in which he was skeptical about diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and processes, not because he's anti-diversity. He's very pro-diversity. He has bona fides of being pro-equality uh, and pro-diversity. But the kind of bureaucratic, formulaic, form filling, checkbox ticking way that uh, white university educated people can formalize the structures of appropriate DEI work yep. was bothering him. And in fact, I mean, one of the concerns that he had was if you're a new migrant from South Asia, you may just not be in the loop of all of these the ways that we're supposed to talk about race in America, and the way that you're supposed the things that you're supposed to say, in the essay that you need to write to to demonstrate how your academic career is going to benefit minorities and people of color and people of di- of different genders. Like it just may not be quite on your radar, and it may be a, it may be a, this may be sort of a cabal coming back to that that word or a scheme w- in which white people with the correct education and the correct critical theory framework are able to promote each other and privilege each other over people who haven't got the memo on that stuff. So graduate students heard these podcasts. They presented him as being anti-diversity, racist. There was a petition. It went viral. UCLA- Pulled back, didn't offer him the job. We can't be one hundred percent sure that they would have offered him the job, but everything certainly didn't help that there was this campaign against him. This is one of a million little things. I mean, you can talk about the the New York Times journalist who was fired for you know using the N word in conversation amongst some students, or the other professor who was fired for talking about a Chinese word that sounds a little bit like the n-word but that triggered people so that those are the kinds of examples if you're asking yeah. for specifics that are very easily cherry-picked presented to uh, an audience in a certain way and don't aid uh, the bringing together of america
1: yeah i mean i think there's a couple different things there the, so the yoel Inbar situation is an interesting one you know you were talking about legacy admissions Uh, Yoel's girlfriend had been offered a position in the psychology department at UCLA. And there is a form of legacy slash nepotistic uh, uh, admissions of hiring at universities where they have these. If your spouse gets hired and you're also a Ph.D., we will kind of go out of our way to create a position for you. We could debate whether that's a good policy yeah, that or not, but doesn't
0: bother me, though, does it? Doesn't bother that's, you. That's, that's fair. horizontal, right? It's not. It's not fair. fair. And also it's a it's a sweetener for them to say, like, yeah. I know you're moving across the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's make it. No, clear. but
1: it's an interesting. It's an interesting element to it. I, uh, I I'm i sort of looking at the details here and, you know, he voiced skepticism about the DEI statements at the school. He wants institutional neutrality in certain places. Um, he apparently made some transgressions when it comes to so-called inclusive etiquette in terms of uh, he called a woman of color intense in a conversation with another professor. I, I don't really like this stuff, but in a different. so. There's a couple different layers to this. One is are these types of statements statements worthy of not hiring someone? That's question number 1. Question number 2 is should student activism around such statements be considered by an educational institution in making such hiring decisions, or should hiring decisions be made without considering the feedback of students? And of course, these students decide we're going to activate against or for something, um, not necessarily only on its merits, but there there develops this sort of like groupthink. I would probably align with you on ninety-nine percent of these things. Is your answer uh, to both of those questions no? My answer is, um, well, let's take them one by one in terms of should these sorts of statements preclude someone from getting a certain job? I mean, listen, I would love to say that it should have no impact whatsoever. But I think the problem is, where do you draw the line? I don't like this. What I'm reading about this particular case concerns me. I also am aware of the fact that. If there is going to be a, a a cultural mismatch, even if I feel that the culture is wrong, do I believe the institution should be in some way blocked from considering past statements? Probably not like no, they probably I don't think should the be argument allowed The
0: institutions should be blocked from doing so. They're a private. I think maybe the problem They're allowed is to be as silly as they want to.
1: Yeah, we I think so. I think we agree there. I don't like that this is the way that so many hiring decisions are ultimately being made, which is sort of rooting around in one's past combined with this sort of activism to say, do not bring this person here. It doesn't seem like the most sophisticated and precise <laughs> way to hire. That
0: uh, yeah, that, yeah. that would be my third point. I mean, I think you, yeah. you're, you're, you're falling short with two. Yes, there's, there's, uh, you know, should, uh, criticisms in the past on a podcast of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and calling a, a black colleague intense when she may have actually been intense, preclude you from being employed, uh, the answer to that may be no. Then, then the question is, should campaigns by graduate students, you know, activist campaigns, uh, be heeded by the uh, you know, academic hir- hirers, uh, employers? I mean, the answer to that, I think, is contingent on our answer to a third question that I would add, which is, what is the manner in which and what are the systems through which we are making decisions, one and and two? In other words, are we responding in a knee-jerk fashion to a social media mob because we're terrified that we're going to look bad and it's going to put us on the wrong side of some kind of ideological diktat? Or are we listening to what the students are saying, evaluating them rationally, and trying to assess whether or not it is, in fact, true that this person is either racist or bigoted or one... Want- I mean, I, I, I don't agree with you that, that an ideological fit, especially in an academic institution, is grounds for not bringing somebody in. I think that you would have to demonstrate that he genuinely has the... In- he does not have the interests of minority students at heart. You know, you would have to demonstrate... Yeah. That there's an actual there there, not just that he's, he's quibbling with processes and systems. Otherwise, if that becomes a legitimate grounds for not hiring people or for firing people or for pillorying people in public or denigrating them or excluding them from polite society or no longer inviting them to your cocktail parties then you're, you really are setting up a, a kind of a, a quasi-Stalinist or at least let's say McCarthyist kind of system where there's right think and there's wrong think. And if you question the systems that we have and you question the importance for our most vulnerable people in our society for you to fill out the forms in triplicate and write your essays about how you're going to assist them and pledge allegiance to the party elders and essentially say the right things. If you dare to question, to think independently, to value traditional old liberal ideas of having a wide and rambunctious public debate where where all voices are accepted, not doesn't mean they're right. You can criticize them, you can push back on them, but that's the whole point. You can push back on them. You're not going to be regarded as a heretic who'll be burnt at, burnt at the stake or who'll lose their job for pushing back on them. Like If your vision is not one of a... A liberal demos, uh, an, uh, an arena of free speech, but your your wor- your worldview is, look, we only take people who agree with basically the framework that we've set up and that we all agree on. I think that is a that that opens the door to a very pernicious place, and clearly, a lot of Americans do as well because that's getting used cynically by people who f- feel as as anxious as I do about that as a way to hoodwink them and cajole them and bully them and frighten them into voting for noxious individuals who want to undermine American democracy. So I I think the stakes are a lot higher than people give it credit for on the left, give it credit for when we start playing this game.
1: Yeah, I, I don't really have an acute problem with anything you said there, although I do think there are certainly some examples of in academic departments where the departures from some of the norms would genuinely just the the entire fit thing. It's like I don't really want to debate it on its merits in individual cases because the real concern I have with this entire discussion is that in the absence of policy, the American right wing has chosen to cynically blow up the relative importance and frequency of what you and I are talking about to make it the issue. They lie about it. They exaggerate. They tell stories about accommodations, about, you know, cat litter boxes in bathrooms for uh, students <laughs> that, that identify as animals. So I don't, like I, lo- I think this is a great conversation. And th- the problem I have with it, even we are doing it right now. If someone doesn't know what's going on in the U.S. and they come in and they hear the last 15 minutes, they will almost certainly come away thinking that this sort of thing is far more central to the main problems that the country is facing right now. I don't think that it is. I think economic issues, healthcare, our lack of dealing with the climate, the fact that education is so pathetic in so many parts of the country. There are so many other issues that I think are more important. I think voters generally agree, which is why. What you see on Reddit and Twitter does not always end up reflecting the way that elections go. So I think it's a perfectly fine conversation on the specifics. You and I will mostly agree. But the problem that I see is the right has tricked people into thinking this is really what's at the foremost of the minds. Of the American voters, when it is not.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree that it is a total sideshow to what really matters, and I'd agree with your list of those things. The, the climate chaos probably being uh, maybe maybe the most important thing because I think it's going to have knock on effects to so many other things. I think I think yeah. the, the cost and stress and just sheer hassle of constantly dealing with deadly wildfires and and hurricanes is is, is just going to drive everybody up the wall, and it's going to make it much harder to get anything else done um yeah. but the 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 only thing i would add to that or or maybe push back on is that underpinning our ability to do to address any of those things is the the viability and sustainability of american democracy and to the extent that these stories are getting manipulated and misused. And they're essentially being used as the laser pointer in front of the cat or the keys jang- jangling in front of the face of your 15-month-old um, to distract voters from what is what really ails them, which are largely questions of economic justice and environmental justice. And to the extent that the, the, the new social justice orthodoxies on the left empower that, and I'm not talking necessarily about one-off examples of your in bar. I'm also talking about the reframing of what justice means from a conversation around economics and class to a conversation around identity, race, gender and and so on. And I think that is a real pivot that's actually happened in the past ten years, that there is now a sense that the colorblindness of forget about Mandela or Martin Luther King or Gandhi, even the the colorblindness of someone like Obama is now seen as somewhat passé and naive and that the real justice mission is in turning the dial up, not down, on our self-consciousness about our own identities, turning the dial up, not down, on our own sense of energized tribalism, turning the dial up, not down, on our fear that we are all scrambling for a piece of a finite pie and that our identities are what should define how much of that pie we get, there is a change in rhetoric on the left from one of universalism and economic justice and class to one of identity. And th- and that shift is empowering and pouring petrol on the the fears that you're talking about uh, on, on the right. And my concern is a- again, I don't want to spend all our time banging on about how bad the left is, but if the only people who are calling out the left for the problems in that shift are cynical right-wingers then we're going to have a problem which is why I think it's actually worth people like me spending time trying to gently coax my colleagues on the left to be more sane because i fear that they're holding a dance party and pouring fire onto a bonfire that nobody wants to get out of control
1: i agree and i'm on the same page as far as that goes you know for years i have said very clearly um this is not the predominant view of the left But to the extent that identity politics has become toxic, the left needs to be saying that needs to stop. And as and I've said so many times identity does matter in the sense that our identity does inform our experience and our view on things. So to the extent that I might say, hey, I'm Jewish, let me tell you about the way that anti-Semitism has manifested in my role as the host of my show. My identity is relevant to that because that's exactly what we're talking about now. If I start using my identity as a cudgel to silence others or to in some way structurally change what they can or should be allowed to say or the things that we're talking about, that's where the line has to be drawn. And I've said the toxic identity politics of the left do enable the right. And also I am observing that it is an extremely small but loud portion of the left. And so one of the things that I try to do with someone from the left is not give it more oxygen than it deserves. Don't ignore it. As you're saying, I, I don't ignore it, but I say, oh, in addition to all these other things that I want to talk about, there is also this contingent of the left. Here's why I disagree with it. Here's why it's counterproductive. Here's why it serves right wing interests let's be aware of it but we're not going to spend you know my entire show talking about that for no, you know I, whatever the case may I, i'm be.
0: not sure i would concur though that it's small and loud i mean it depends what we're defining right i mean so the the people who will actually come out and uh you know spit in the face of uh, of a professor for i don't know daring to talk about equality instead of equity or something like that is small and loud but uh, I mean, I don't know what world you're living in, but there are all kinds of new orthodoxies that really cannot be questioned without you being uh, pilloried or excluded from polite society. I,
1: I just don't know that. I agree. I mean, I, I agree that there are attempts to impose these orthodoxies, but if there's any greater example of the fact that it is not predominant in any space on the left, it's the 2020, uh, a uh, Repu- uh, democratic primary where you had one discussion that was attempted to be imposed primarily on social media. And it was a discussion about the disaster, the, the, the racist disaster that is Joe Biden and on and on and on. And you would have looked at it and said, wow, Bernie Sanders is going to win this primary on the backs of this uh, woke agenda of that. Exactly what you're describing. And then people in Michigan and Wisconsin and South Carolina who work for a living, spend very little time on social media, spend very little time paying attention to this stuff said, oh, I I like the economic message of Joe Biden and that's who I'm voting for. Don't misunderstand
0: me. I'm not talking about a majority of like democratic voters. I'm talking about a vast majority of the chattering classes. I mean, I'm talking about what, what we think of as being the intellectual elite. We're talking about the people who go to parties in Brooklyn and, uh, you know, uh, and on the east side of Los Angeles with, you know, when we're not talking about, uh, you know, people But who the, I in hate, I hate to in, say it, but in the, the
1: fraction of those on the left in Los Angeles and Brooklyn who go to the parties and impose those orthodoxies is a pretty damn small part of the entire left.
0: I don't think that the, the ideas that are generated and the orthodoxies that are uh, that are imposed by those people are without their harms. They they filter out through the editorial pages of newspapers. They filter out through the campaigns of uh, of politicians. They filter out through what people are acceptably uh, demonised for on social media. I mean, just let's just talk specifics, like you know, rather than talking around it. Like, uh, let me think of some things off the top of my head. Um, you know, how easy is it for Uh, How easy is it for a white – in in Australia, there's an obvious example, which would be that it has become the norm in the past 10 years for every meeting, including online, to begin with with an acknowledgement of country, a land acknowledgement, right? Uh, it, It is not really tenable to say, you know, I'm not sure that we necessarily are actually assisting any Indigenous people by us white people on this Zoom call reciting this catechism uh that will you won't be invited back to the next zoom call yeah so that's Similarly, a really good example you know, you wouldn't that's be, really I, let me I just, can i just weigh yeah, in
1: on that example yeah so i agree with you completely i have i've have said for years i think those declarations and the let's go around the room or the zoom with our pronouns i think both of those things do not make sense are there some people that disagree with me sure are there some institutions that have said this is what we're doing and if you question it you're going to be ostracized. A hundred percent that exists. I mean, yeah, I just think to, it's such a small percentage. No, it's not. I it's really, really do. Not.
0: I mean, you know, the biggest drug companies in America and the biggest software companies in America now have pronouns in their bios. And yeah, maybe you can opt out. I'm not sure. My friends who work for one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, which is actually headquarters in headquartered in Switzerland, he works in Switzerland. Yeah. But nonetheless, the California like social. Justice orthodoxy has made its way to to Switzerland. He doesn't, in practice, have the right as a senior manager to remove his pronouns from his bio.
1: It would be seen as like, why do you hate transgender people so much? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we're kind of getting it to the point where we just disagree as to the the relative frequency of this stuff. I don't know anyone I mean, who has even the t-
0: number of like you know the number of top. 50 companies that have pronouns in their buyers I suppose it would be Yeah, I'd be
1: curious proportion. to know what the numbers are. I I don't I don't know the numbers. So I, I mean I think I, I agree with you that I think it's a bit much. And, you know, uh, I'm sure there are some on the left that will disagree with me. But when I've expressed these views to my audience, it's not considered controversial. And my audience is overwhelmingly on the left.
0: I mean, how? Yeah, but the, I, I intentionally said that I was picking an example where Australia was much more uh, along the path of uh, of those particular examples. But I mean, to, think, yeah. to I'm just trying to think of a more Americanized example. Uh, it'd be interesting to know what kinds of, you know, polite Left-wing uh, environments, you could say, you know, what I don't, I really don't believe that that white people are racist. I just don't, I don't think that that this idea of there being like structural racism is even a thing. And I don't think that there's such a thing as inherited, uh, like, generate intergenerational trauma. I think every person is just born a new person, and there's no, you're not, you're not owed anything just because there was slavery in the past. There was slavery in all kinds of places. The Arabs had slaves. The the Brits had slaves. You know, the United States is sitting on half of Mexico. You know life is tough uh you know everyone sort of needs to figure out how to make it on their own i just don't i don't agree that there is any uh there is any existing and living disadvantage against black people in america i mean that i don't i don't don't know how far you would you would get with that those are not things that i'm saying that i believe i'm just trying to point to things i think it depends on which one of those things
1: you're saying you know i think that like to give two examples saying i'm not convinced there should be reparations for the descendants of slaves some on the left will say oh that's a very that's the the wrong position to take others you know, will say yeah i would say, not yeah,
0: include that as something that i think has become
1: fair promoting. fair on the other hand it's pretty uncontroversial to say that for example in many major cities a form of structural racism that's left over from from decades past is the way that public transit is organized public transit remains organized in a way that makes it very difficult to get from the historically black neighborhoods to the neighborhoods where all the jobs are it's not because anybody today said let's make racist bus lines it's a vestige of what there was before and you could that it's a form of of structural racism it doesn't mean the guy from the you know transit authority is personally racist but I think we have to also accept that those things do exist. So I think it's a much more complicated gray area with a lot of this stuff.
0: Do you think that there is a. Do you think that the things that can be discussed openly without fear of being misrepresented are constrained more tightly today than they were in the past? <sighs> probably.
1: Yeah. Probably. I mean, For the I think. Better? I don't think so. No. So here's here's my thing. My view is it should be on the table to discuss anything. None of these conversations should be blocked or preempted out of hand. And the example I often give is when I think it was the Harvard president at the time, Larry Summers, he said something about maybe there's something neurologically about men and women and math. Like maybe there is something that explains why there are more male mathematicians than female. And he was like roundly attacked for it. And it was crazy. You know, my view on that is if it were true that there was something about the brain that made men and women different when it comes to math, we should know that. It would be extremely important to know that it should be explored. It shouldn't be dismissed out of hand. And also we need to be vigilant about people who are asking these questions in bad faith, sometimes questions to which we already have answers. So so I hope I'm making like the the two sides clear when we say are you saying we shouldn't be allowed to know whether vaccines cause autism? Of course, we should be allowed to know. But It's been studied and you just saying you're not being allowed to ask the question is wrong. You're allowed to ask it. It's been studied. We have data we have. So I think we have to both be attuned to bad faith blocking of certain questions, but also people who want to ask questions we have the answers to, and they're doing it for cynical reasons.
0: That's true. I mean, I would just make the point that, that censorship is more insidious than just saying you can't have that conversation, right? I mean, the very few people, even the most cancel culture person is unlikely to say, you're not allowed to have that conversation. Now, they might you know disinvite a speaker from coming to college or something which is a version of there that there will be
1: repercussions but
0: the more insidious yeah the repercussions are the more insidious thing the fact that you sure. you, just, you walk around the rest of your life with a whiff about you which you're carrying from uh, having been the subject of a social media pile on that was accusing you of being racist or or bigoted in some sure. way right i mean it, it's just sure. a it's a willful misinterpretation of what you're trying to say and on the on the Larry Summers question i mean uh, you know maybe a more uh a more pressing example on that same issue was when Google fired the engineer James Damore, who Google had literally said, let's try to figure out how to get more women into into software engineering. So we're open to all suggestions. Like everyone write everyone write in this is we're asking all of our employees for an understanding. He writes this piece saying, you know, there may just be gender differences here. This you know, there may be there may be there may be things that women are interested in. And I would add that I don't think the autism and vaccines analogy is a good one because there there we really do have science on that. I mean, we know that there is no link. The jury is still out. I mean, there are all kinds of studies that show that if you get a 1,000 women together in a room and give them the option of taking apart a bunch of widgets and putting them back together – or if you ask them if they want to spend the day mediating a family uh, dispute and then you do the same with a bunch of men, there actually is a gender difference. Now, is that biological? Is that a cultural Yeah, it's... We don't know. But I don't think that firing someone for saying, you know, maybe you know, two sexes have been going back through biology for a very long time, lots of different animals and lots of different cultures – structure the interests of the two sexes in different ways and the roles of the two sexes in different ways, maybe there is some kind of biological difference. This is another issue that is likely to get you pilloried and accused of bigotry towards transgender people if you insist that there's some difference between the biological sexes. But I mean, I don't think we can say that the, the case is closed on that question.
1: No, I think in so su- in, in some areas, the case is closed and in some it is not. Some have been studied and some some have not. I think, you know, the the example you gave, obviously, that the, the thousand men and the thousand women are being asked to choose what they'd rather do uh, with decades of culture already uh, in their brains. And so I think you and I understand why it's a sort of complicated question. The James Damore thing I have to, I interviewed him. I have to admit, it's been a while since I I, I don't I m- remember he wrote a sort of manifesto of sorts explaining his potential views on the thing. One of the things that I remember about that was when I interviewed him, it seemed to me that he did not relate easily to other people. And it was later revealed that he's actually autistic. And and I wonder to what degree the interactions with him became frayed because he does as a result of that struggle in some of these conversations and i don't know how he was communicating these things behind the scenes there's so much to that that i don't remember
0: that's revealing uh, i mean it's also revealing because people on the spectrum tend to have a, a, a you know a, a difficulty in understanding the sort of social cues and social niceties and social norms that uh, that neurotypical people take for granted so he may have just said like i'm just telling my version of the truth and i don't
1: understand why yeah. that's a problem yeah, yeah, it's been so long that I just don't remember. But obviously, I remember the story, but some of the details elude me now.
0: Yeah, uh, I want to talk to you about Joe Biden and uh, maybe the alternative media universe—the Joe Rogans and Temples of the world. But uh, for our regular listeners, uh, I want to thank you for listening and I want to thank you for for being here we'll uh, we'll wrap up that portion if you want to subscribe to uncomfortable conversations it's uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen you get your own personalized uh, feed with all of the premium content including additional bonus episodes and these uh, these final little chapters with the likes of David Packman um, David a lot of the rhetoric that I feel is coming out of American politics at the moment that I hear is, you know, on the left at least, an anxiety about uh, Biden's age. Is that an unfair distraction? To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for Uncomfortable Conversations with the Substack.